Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. On this episode of The Greener Way, we're joined by Joshua Gilbert, a Warimi man who works and lives on country. Josh is a senior researcher at the UTS Jambana Institute of Indigenous Education and Research and is completing his PhD at Charleston University, focusing on the post-colonial involvement of indigenous peoples in Western agricultural systems. We're here to talk about Josh's research and why learning from indigenous people's 65,000 year knowledge base is key to building thriving agriculture and natural capital markets in Australia. Josh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Can you please fill us in a little bit more about yourself and your focus and your PhD research? Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here. And I'd, I'd like to start by acknowledging country. I'm joining from more of my country uh, today and just want to acknowledge my elders past and present. And when we conduct uh, acknowledgements and welcomes here on country, we say Gatanirang at the end, which means let us go together. And for me, that's really the spirit in which our mob work on this country and, and all the different messages that we share. Essentially, the, the PhD is a, uh, and my, my research and my thinking is really about understanding what happened on different landscapes across what we know as Australia now. And fundamentally, um, exploring the many ways in which truth-telling can help unlock the way in which landscapes work, operate, and what the future might be. So we know here on Warramai Country, our people have farmed for about 65,000 years. Um, it's a place where, you know, where I live in Gloucester now, it's a place where men's business is just in the mountains over this way and women's business is in the mountains uh, over the other way. And um, it's a place where, you know, my family have the first recorded birth in the caves in the mountains just um, to the left of me. So this is very much home. And our story uh, in terms of Western agriculture started in 18, the 1820s when the Australian Agricultural Company got gifted a million Warramai acres and got told to set up camp and, and start farming. So we, we have this long-standing history in terms of Western agriculture as well, almost 200 years of you know, really the first landscape that Australian agriculture in the, in the way it looks now, you know, the, the particularly in terms of export markets was set up. It, it all started here. Mm -hmm. uh, this is ground zero kind of thing. So for me, really, this place is, is important in the truth telling that happens here. And my research really aims to connect all of those stories, all of the learnings and all of the lessons to say, we as, as Indigenous people aren't static people. We, we didn't stop our um, cultural connection to landscape in the 1820s when our land was gifted and that our involvement in agriculture is very much the same in, in many ways to what uh, Western agriculturalists have faced over time. Uh, there's a few complications in that, the native title and, and fair wages and, and the whole heap of other stories, but fundamentally our role is just as important when we think about Western agriculture in Australia then as what well it's going to be into the future. Fantastic. I'm trying not to get too bogged down and wanting to ask questions about what it would be a 65,000 year old midwifery story as well yes. when you're talking about the, the paintings uh, in one part of Warramai country. So I'm going to refocus this. <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this, about the history of agriculture in Warramai country, Josh. Um, are Warramai people graziers? Is it you know, tilled land, cropping land? Can you paint a picture for our listeners about, about your country? 
Yeah, so I, I mean, predominantly now it's beef cattle country, but it didn't start as beef cattle country back. Um, obviously, a long-standing Indigenous history, but even uh, in terms of Western agriculture, AA crew thought that this was perfect sheep country, mm-hmm. and actually, we have um, you know a, a whole heap of testaments to that that uh, remembrance. So uh, the the mountain ranges around here in the very first kind of Western journals that were written and recorded of this country talk about this place as almost being castle-like uh, in this remembrance of what England looked like. And, uh, you know, th- there's commentary that said, you know, that the surrounding hills and mountains almost look like decrepit castles mm-hmm. uh, in the landscape. And, you know, obviously we have this very English word of Gloucester being uh, the place in which we call home mm-hmm. um, and, and just down a bit further from us is Stratford. So, you know, very English <laughs> names. <laughs> Um, but this is a, a test bed of, of what agriculture is going to look like in Australia as well. So it's, um, you know, we know it, it's very high humidity, high rainfall area. Uh, there's quite a lot of you know, issues when they, they started bringing sheep here. So they started testing and, and uh, looking at different agricultural methods here. So we had, we, we had crops being grown. We had a whole range of cotton and wheat and canola, all these kind of things that were all happening on this landscape. None of them worked until uh, beef cattle started coming here. So it very much was a test bed. Uh, then pivoted, I guess, into dairy farming, and then has now moved on to to beef cattle farming. Given that dairy isn't as profitable as what it once was, that's a two hundred some year history. But how about the rest of the sixty five thousand years in terms of um, either you know the, the the stories in history that were handed down or the evidence on the ground? Is uh, is this land traditionally been grazier land? For the for the majority of its sixty five thousand years, and, and as as it's been, um, you know, occupied and owned or stewarded by the Warami people. Yeah, so our connection with this land is very different, and and I think the way in which we use landscape is very different to how we think about it now. Mm. So we actually re- relied upon a lot of seasonal or, or environmental indicators to tell us when this country was ready for a break, uh, and when to move back over to the coast. So. Uh, it's quite well recorded um, in terms of Western literature, but we, uh, you know, Warramai people, you know, in this kind of mountain range country and, and you know, not too far from here is ancient Gondwana rainforest, the Barrington Tops. Um, and when the hairy worm would move on the ground here, that was an indication for us that it was time to pack up, uh, maybe burn a bit of country and, and uh, keep that for the next season and move back over to the coast um, where we've got, the, you know, the beautiful beaches of Foster and Tunkari. So, um, we're, we're very much this kind of transitional people. Uh, I think we, as a mob, identify with, as saltwater people, but we spend a lot of time in this kind of freshwater locations as well and really use nature to, to move across the landscape um, and, and to really tell us when that time was, was there. And I guess probably equally as important, a lot of our totems are, are saltwater animals, so obviously spending a lot more time on the coast and having that strong connection to there. Uh, the way in which our mop survived off seafood is really fascinating. It's so much more unlike kind of Western society now. And really listening and or, or you know reading and understanding the stories from from those times that have gone past really show the impact that uh, agriculture and you know climate change and all these other environmental burdens upon this landscape has really taken. So there's stories of our mob going down and swimming and picking up crayfish, you know, as big as fists, one in each hand, 
Um, and, and that being, you know, common practice, uh, that's certainly not the case now, I guess, when, when we go swimming. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those kinds of stories are really important to understand what this landscape must have been like. Which is the perfect entry to my next question. Um, you know, there's this beautiful, you know, the 10,000 decade, 10,000 year scope of caring for country and knowledge that's mm-hmm. present in what you're talking about, Josh. What do you think the modern agriculture sector can learn from indigenous peoples and their knowledge of land? You know, can we see the hairy worm coming out of the rainforest now and know that it's time to give a section of country rest? Well, potentially. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, the way in which our landscape works is very different yeah. to that now. Uh, and it'd be fantastic to have enough land to really test and you know model that to see if it still has um, attribution and, and you know meaning today with a Western agricultural system. Mm. I'd love I'd love the chance to do that, but I don't think I'll, I'll ever get the chance to <laughs> to see that be actualized. Yep. But I think fundamentally, what our mob's stories and lessons are, um, you know, particularly over the last two hundred years, we we started farming Western commodities at the same time as what most Australians did on this landscape. Uh, my my dad's family, um, whose history is very well documented, because members married bushrangers, and there's a, a well known story around here. That that history of, of actually having that connection coming together and starting to farm sheep on you know terrible country for sheep, but but starting to come together and share the understandings of this landscape and what it means to be here mm. and then looking at how you implement that into common you know, agricultural practice is very much a learning our mob, not only just to, you know, here in my country, but right across Australia. Mm. So I think we've been incorporating some of that uh, and what we're asking for now and, and what we um, I think have the opportunity to do is really weave in that bigger story, that much larger story of, well, what are those longer, longer standing lessons? Uh, and then how do we think about this landscape for the future so that we can keep farming for the next 65 plus thousand years? I love that. Um, I originally heard you speak at the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute uh, conference, Josh, uh, in, in October. And I, I love the fact that it was we've had 65,000 years so far and you, you're looking forward to the next 65,000 years. That's that's a great time scale. That's a, that's a long term investment right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it is, but but it's also important. I think um, too often when we think about sustainability, we talk about a five or ten year sustainability framework, mm-hmm. and you know, well, well, that's great, and and kind of you know does provide action and, and some you know activities that people can commit to. Mm-hmm. When we start thinking about what this landscape is going to look like in sixty five thousand years, given the impacts of climate change, there's a lot of very different questions mm-hmm. that we start asking, and a lot of different thinking that we need to need to start implementing to make sure that this country is at the best it can be. So how there's a huge focus on this, obviously, um, when we're talking about things like decarbonization, climate change, natural capital. How do how can we make sure that investors and government and business are improving their focus on these environmental outcomes that you're talking about and making sure that indigenous communities and traditional owners have their rightful place in this process? So there's there's many ways, uh, and, and probably the quick wins are really implementing some of the strategies that organisations already have. Mm-hmm. And I think for me that you know there's thousands of organisations now that have a reconciliation action plan or a commitment to First Nations um, procurement and and employment. Mm-hmm. And what I hope is that you know large scale investors can think about how they can better utilise their invest uh, their investments to then chase the the supply channel down 
and really invest and back good Indigenous businesses that are out there doing fantastic things. Mm-hmm. So a really um, practical example of this is, uh, you know, there's some guys I know who are, uh, you know, Aboriginal cattle farmers, that they're some of the best cattle farmers in their breeds. They get the top price for some of their animals. Um, you know, they're doing a fantastic job. Where, you know, a, a big investment organization or superannuation fund invested invest in agriculture to try and get a return, mm-hmm. they should be putting pressure on their agricultural managers to say, you should be procuring from an indigenous business. Mm-hmm. Go out there and find the black farmers who are doing a cracking job uh, on their livestock who are going to get the, you know, the same kind of livestock that you're going to buy from anyone else at the market mm-hmm. and go out and back them, give them a buck and, and really kind of actualize that that process so that we can get um, mob farming and onto the landscapes. Mm-hmm. You know, another real practical example is if you have all this landscape, well, then how do you get, you know, Indigenous fire practitioners from the Fire Sticks Alliance, for instance, to come out and do cultural burning on your, on your mm-hmm. lands where it's appropriate and have that connection and then get them back every 12 months or whenever the season tells you um, so that they can come out and keep doing it and have that long-standing connection on their landscapes. All of these things are out mm-hmm. there that, you know, all these um, Indigenous businesses are certainly starting up. We're just really slow at really, um, you know, providing opportunities for them in terms of Indigenous business. Listen, in terms of um, traditional fire burning techniques, um, that's one of the things that has become integrated into methodologies for Australian carbon credit units, for example. Yes. Um, with this whole new world of natural capital, um, are there other, you know, pockets of Indigenous knowledge or Indigenous practice that you think would translate over to that natural capital approach? Oh, so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, and this is one of the the issues is that we need to make sure that we're taking a very localised approach. I think, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, we'll just pick up a methodology or a learning from, from you know, some Indigenous group somewhere and, and hope that it sticks on a different country. Yeah. So really, I think it's important to have really local connections um, so that people are connecting locally and understand the stories very specific to their landscape. Mm. Because not all of this country was meant to be burnt, for instance. Um, but I think we have this uh, real perspective in Australia that, oh, well, if it, happen- if it works and it's okay in one area, then we'll just keep replicating it and hope for the best. Mm. So where we can learn and, and approach uh, local Indigenous groups and understand how they manage country and what their stories are on country as well, all of that kind of provides a very new perspective for different businesses on how they can manage landscapes better. Mm. And then also, you know, what are the natural benefits that come with that and, and then how do you put a, a value on kind of the, that connection? And I think very important to differentiate how you put a, a value on culture and kind of, you know, getting mob and then, you know, very different to how you get mob involved and then put a value on that. I keep throwing back to this. Uh, we did an interview with Jack Lattimore, who's the um, Aboriginal reporter for uh, The Age down here in, in Melbourne. Yes. And it, this concept of slow journalism and taking the time to invest in relationships through the lens of journalism, which is something I'm activated mm. by. Um, but I would assume the same applies in this situation that you have to be invited onto country. You have to be there's the, to to gain this knowledge and this local perspective as applies mm. to very you know deep and specific local lore, and it, it's a fascinating opportunity. It it, it is, and I, I think the other important bit is that more we're involved in the systems. So what we don't see in agriculture, for instance, is a lot of mob in leadership roles who are out there saying this is what an indigenous agricultural system looks like, and this is how you can support us in doing it. So. 
what we instead see is a, a whole heap of non-Indigenous people out there saying, this is what we think Indigenous systems look yeah. like and, you know, here's our methodology that we've developed on the back of that. Let's hope that that sticks mm. uh, and, you know, feel free to say that you're, you're finally in our method. Mm. So that's the kind of shift that needs to happen. Mm. And equally, I think in the environmental space, one of the things that I get very frustrated about is the the impact of just saying, oh, we've we've approached mob or we've had, you know, lessons or learnings from mob, but we don't see mob in those, you know, very broad leadership roles or um, it's very rare to see mob on, on different boards and things like that. And they're the shifts that we mm. need. We actually need mob leading there so that we have an equal seat at the table, not because we're blackfellas, but because we're really good at what we do. And to actually sit down and say, well, this is what, this is what I'm bringing to the table and slowly build those relationships so that, that our knowledge can be interwoven into some of these approaches. That's a missing piece of a lot of conversations, Josh, but it's particularly apt yeah. here um, when we're talking about agriculture and natural capital. So with that as mind, as the lens, what's the key work going forward for you uh, in terms of your research, your work for caring on country? Yeah, so for me, this probably takes a few angles. Um, one is actually narrating what Indigenous agriculture looks like today. And that's, you know, fundamentally the role of the PhD um, is to really tell the story that mob were involved in the sector and that we need mob continues to be involved in the sector. Uh, some of the statistics are really kind of terrible. We have um, 2.1% of the, the workforce that actually identifies Indigenous despite owning nearly 60% of Australia's land mass. Mm -hmm. Less than half of the re agricultural revenue um, that comes out of you know, farm gate values actually goes back to Indigenous people despite only 60% of the landscape. Um, we have less than five, like the number five, and I'm always very careful about saying like the number <laughs> five because I think people say 5%, that's great, yeah. but just the number five of university graduates from every university in Australia that are studying agriculture. <laughs> These are the kind of big shifts that need to take place, um, as well as organisations really committing to not just um, reconciliation action plans and targets, but actually embedding cultural awareness training and really seeing what some of their work can do on the ground to, to create those relationships and to do more than just the, the, you know, the numbers, I guess. Mm -hmm. While the numbers are important and we need to be growing the Indigenous business sector, we need to go beyond that and really think about what are some of the other opportunities. One of the, the elements is uh, telling the story, showing that we're, we're not scary, that we have our same agricultural uh, yarns as well. And I always say, you know, I listen to country music. I grew up driving country roads and, you know, uh, sitting in the back of utes and, and having that connection just like any other country kid. And that's just as important saying that we're, you know, very much the same, but have very different worldviews in what we do. That, that's a really you know, important part. Another part is kind of growing out the, the academic literature um, and actually planting the flag in the ground and saying that we all want to own this space mm. and we're not just going to let non-Indigenous people come in and tell us what we should be doing or what our methods are. Mm. And, and I guess the last bit is around trying to think about what that future state is going to be for mob. You know, even just in, I, I know I have this 65,000 year lens and, and that's super important, but our agricultural system in this conversation is about 40 years behind that of the US and Canada. Mm. And what I want to make sure we do is rapidly um, kind of advance on that and get beyond them. So we need to be creating, you know, an Indigenous Agricultural Research and Development Corporation so we can fund the, the research that we want rather than agricultural organisations telling us what we can and can't do. 
we need a, a black advocacy body that's kind of pushing uh, government and organizations to not only be doing raps, but to actually have our policy listened to at a federal and state level, not just um, you know, white farmers who think that they know us best and want to be ensure that they can continue farming. Mm-hmm. And I think lastly, we just need to show that mob belong in the space. And um, you know, whether that's through media or, or through um social media or other promotion work. We just need to show a black face, you know, riding a horse or, or driving a tractor and show that what belong in this space and that that's a viable career path going forward. Call to arms to our listeners here at The Greener Way who are talking about ways in which they can channel investment dollars to uh, championing excellence in uh, Indigenous and, and Black culture. So putting it all out on our listeners. So Josh, you've painted a beautiful picture for us through this conversation about your country, uh, what are my country. Where do you see yourself, Josh, in your future? Uh, and what does that look like? I probably don't think about myself in this, in terms of that that lens. Mm. I think you know, for me, it's it's fundamentally about enabling more youth. Uh, I don't need to be the the person. That, you know, it's it's really just saying what are the opportunities for the next generations who want to do this, and how can we back them to really get you know take the bull by the horns, I guess, <laughs> and, and really kind of approach this in a direct way. So. I feel like a lot of the work I do is trying to knock down barriers and to create a network so that, you know, the next generation of, of blackfellas that come up behind me can say, oh, we want to speak to this fund manager. Um, we've got this cracking business idea. How do we facilitate that? I can say, well, here's our mate's number. Just give him a call and, and say that I sent you and, you know, really break down those kind of institutional barriers that exist. Mm. You know, even just like lawyers and things like that, like, there's not many mob out there who, who have a direct connection to a lawyer who can get you know just that little bit of advice when you need it. So really breaking down some of those things. And you know, fundamentally my role is to enable the next um, the next generation, that next sixty-five thousand years of people who come next. So the little bit of the story that I help try and shift now is all in te- you know in testament to that. That hopefully one day I'll be able to get a bit of land that will cement that ability for the, the future as well um, and really you know show that practical nature of, of what I'm trying to embody and and really just have that you know on behalf of our mob to say well let's let's do this and show it can be done right Josh Gilbert thank you so much for joining us for this conversation no thanks so much for having me pleasure thanks for listening to the greener way podcast if you like today's show remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode any feedback contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allenbackis. The Greenaway podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greenaway podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website 
fssustainability.com.au.